Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to August edition of Recharge, the podcast by Battery Materials Review. Coming up, we've got a fascinating interview with Mark Selby, CEO of TSX Venture Listed Canada Nickel. During an interesting period for nickel, we talk about M&A and how new nickel technologies are likely to impact the industry. In a sec, we'll have a recap of all the month's news with Cormac, but I'd just like to thank this issue's sponsors, ICC Sino. ICC Sino is a professional industry research and consulting company in China, which is specialized in the lithium battery market research and data analysis. Check out their services at iccsino.com. If your company is interested in sponsoring our podcast, then please drop me a line through the Battery Materials Review website. Moving on now, and I'm delighted to welcome Cormac O'Lara, MD of Electrios Energy. Cormac, I hope you enjoyed your month off and are raring to go. Thank you, Matt, for giving me a month off. I appreciate the summer break, the monsoon season here in Hong Kong for uh, the last couple of weeks. Even right now, it's... uh, Oh, lovely. So not too much sun then. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's kick off in terms of the news over the last four to six weeks. And I guess probably of a lot of interest to uh, players in the raw material space and, and potentially moving into the mid and downstream is the pretty substantial move that we've seen in lithium prices, particularly in the spodumene concentrate end of the business hydroxide prices have been strong, and it looks like carbonate prices are starting to reverse their downward movements and starting to recover. What are you hearing in China from um, converters, uh, et cetera? Again, it's uh, shortages, 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 lack of access to spodumene, and very concerned about buying and stocking right now towards the end of the end of the year. And that's why we're seeing uh, some of these uh, price jumps in, in the spodumene uh, sales at the moment. I think there's a very interesting spot market starting to emerge in, in Western Australia with the auction by Pilbara Minerals, which I, I, I flagged on uh, in my column on LinkedIn, and also by Galaxy, making small amounts of material available for the spot market and getting huge, huge prices. I think it was Pilbara yeah. got over $1,200 a ton, I think. Galaxy got around $900 a ton, significantly above the current price in the market. So it's clear that we've got a, a massive supply-demand imbalance in, in spodumene concentrate. And, and obviously, that's going to have a flow-through effect in terms of carbonate and um, uh, hydroxide prices going forward, I think. Yeah, it was interesting, the online auction for a relatively little amount of material, I think it was 10,000 tons. They had over twelve hundred, as you said, and was the was the price that went at the auction. But they next day in the spot market, it was uh, you know closer to nine hundred uh, USD per ton. So I guess those guys didn't win out. And it was a uh, I think it was a uh, lower grade. It wasn't even the six uh, percent. It was five point five or so. So yeah. And a couple of years ago, I remember you pointing this out to me that the lower grades nobody was looking to buy or interested in buying lower, anything less than six. Really now. It's more than acceptable, even I, though... I think the, the issue here is you've got a, a number of large-scale converters starting up in the fourth quarter, and yeah. obviously they can't start up if they don't have lithium. So it's about 
lithium now are not necessarily great, certainly for the next sort of three or four months or so. And well, I think the big issue that we're dealing with is just very little new supply coming into to Western Australia. So it's a perfect storm in many ways for the miners, not quite so much fun, I, I don't think, for the converters and the cathode makers if they don't have raw material pass-through clauses with their clients. And as you can see, China's trying to wean itself off, or plans to wean itself off uh, international lithium supply by trying to um, develop more domestic uh, projects, uh, both uh, brine and, and uh, hard rock. And again, converters also, um, you know, uh, a lot of new converter projects, as you just mentioned, a project coming online. And, uh, you know, they love if they could get domestic supply. Um, and I wonder, I wonder what that. Get. <laughs> Good luck with that in terms of volume and quality, I think. BYD are involved in, in some of the, you know, uh, the processing uh, techniques. They've uh, filed a number of patents in the direct lithium extraction field. And it uh, seems uh, this is kind of, and you see the US markets also are very interested in DLE and, and Europe as well. And uh, China's making moves in that area also. And, and, and they're announcing a lot of success stories, but with no data. Success stories are, are highlighted by the fact they'll be able to achieve X amount of tonnage in by 2025 or something like that. But uh, uh, I no must reason. say, uh, I mean, I think the, the DLE point feeds into to another point, which is obviously the fairly significant offtake agreements that have been signed by major automakers with DLE suppliers over the last couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, this is primarily with regards to geothermal lithium projects in the US and in, and in Europe and to a lesser extent in China. My concern is, one, these are offtake agreements, so they're still going to be exposed to the prevailing lithium price, which may be an issue. And the second point is these are still experimental projects. I mean, as far as I'm aware, there are no pilot plants extant for these projects. Uh, there's no commercial production extant for these projects. And every single lithium operation that started up over the last six or seven years has had very, very substantial delays and very, very substantial quality issues at the beginning. So it's highly unlikely that these geothermal projects will come on into production on time and on spec. And um, I think these auto players are, are treading a dangerous path, expecting yeah. to be able to secure quality lithium straight away from these projects. I think, you know, they could be late and they may not be battery grade. I don't think it's really a sol solution to the supply shortage. Yeah, I noticed the offtake agreements are very little amounts, like 10,000 tons, 5,000, nothing substantial, really. They're attractive, right? Be especially the, the European OEMs because of the low carbon footprint and very yeah. light. The actual industry footprint is quite low. There's nothing, especially the geothermal, not much uh, infrastructure going to be above ground. But uh, as you said, it's going to take a long time. You don't know what the material they're going to pull out is, what the raw material, how they're going to process it, what they're going to have to remove, what metals are there. You know, I'm, I'm sure they've done sampling, all right. But when, as you said, when you get to large scale, uh, these problems are going to emerge. And um, Yeah. And I mean, the number of times in the mining industry, in the chemicals industry, something looked good on a lab scale, but was a complete and abject failure at the commercial scale. That happens quite a lot. So, and the big yeah. issue with the geothermal is because 
a lot of these resources are very deep, two or three kilometers deep. So to, to drill down to, to those sort of levels is very expensive. So there's very, very limited sampling being done on a geographical base across a deposit. So yeah, I, I think I'd be very happy if I was wrong and these things came into production with, with no problem, but I fear that they will be delayed and then they will, will take a while to, to hit their uh, planned spec. Likewise, I look forward to seeing these developments coming online, ultra clean, ultra pure. I, I think the recent life cycle analysis done by Minerova on um, Vulcan was showing a negative tonnage uh, CO2 emissions. So, you know, it looks fantastic, but um, yeah, it's going to take some time to get it out of the ground, processed, uh, qualified into cars. And uh, hopefully we won't be all driving sodium ion battery cars by then. <laughs> yeah, so so that leads on very nicely to the CATL sodium ion presentation. And uh, as with a lot of these um, battery presentations, I thought it was a, a, a victory for, uh, for spin over substance. What did you take out of the presentation? Well, the numbers look good. They're not tackling the high nickel market. They're going after lithium iron phosphate with the idea that lithium iron phosphate is not going to get cheaper or not going to get uh, improved in energy density by the time uh, the sodium ion batteries are ready for the market. Traditionally, I've been used to seeing you know, a lot of the uh, sodium ion companies, and most of them are tech startups, but some you know have products for sale uh, are in the energy storage market, UPS, are, and now moving into a certain level, grid scale, not entirely energy storage, but uh, CLTL is the first manufacturer I've seen who declared their products suitable for electric vehicles. Most other sodium ion manufacturers are going after tool market, something more specialized. It's interesting to see, as you just mentioned earlier, a lot of things look great in the lab scale because they, you know, they didn't show anything. Usually a CATL will, will show a new chemistry, a new cell at some level above cell, you know, the data in the pack or some cycling data that they showed nothing. It's not that impressive, the 15-minute to 80% uh, charge. We can already do that with some of the battery chemistry we have at the moment. Obviously, the thermal performance at minus 20, which showed, uh, you know, which is a big problem for LFP cars late last year in the winter, early 2021, where we saw some problems with the Tesla made in China LFP cells. So they have, a, you know, they came up with a, a tactic, which is the alternating, uh, they're going to have a battery pack with sodium ion cells mixed with lithium ion cells. When you're driving around in minus 20 or starting your car in minus 20, you'll be running on the sodium ion. And uh, as your car begins to warm up, maybe uh, then your lithium ion can come in line. So it's a strategy for dealing with cold weather without putting extra weight in the car, such as heating or thermal fluids to warm your pack up. I mean, the cycle life emission was, was a big one because obviously that's been a historically a huge concern for uh, sodium ion batteries. And then I guess the other question is, what are the electrodes going to be? Because I understand they use this material called Prussian white for one of the processes. And I just wonder, I understand that's made out of a cyanide precursor. And I just wonder how scalable that's going to be of yeah, the yeah. form for replacing LFP and electric vehicle batteries or in ESS. I, I just wonder how scalable that process is going to be and how, whether that's going to be a high temperature process, et cetera. 
whether this is actually going to work on a on a scale basis. The idea of sodium-ion batteries entering the lithium-ion sphere was to use and is currently the mainstay identical to lithium-ion's intercalation cathode. So Prussian blues, uh, Prussian white. I, I didn't read that. Is that a, was that that wasn't in their. Um, that's not in their presentation. That's that's from sort of uh, reading around about uh, common sort of electrodes and everything. I mean, maybe they have a different a different solution, but I think yeah. you know one of one of the things that's you know very clear in all of this is that um, it's all right to say, well, on a you know pilot plant basis, I was able to source lots of sodium and and lots of raw materials to make the parts of the battery, but. The issue is whether you could actually source them on a basis where you're, you know, building 10, 20, 30 million EV batteries a year, whether it's scalable on that sort of volume. And I think that's yeah. that's well, the key issue. The idea is to put so cheap, abundant sodium in there. No one's going to want to see vast amounts of cyanide in the same cell. It's just going to kill yeah. the marketing spin on that, for sure, if that's the chemistry they're going with. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. So I guess uh, what what what's been going on with CATL uh, feeds on nicely to sort of uh, the the Chinese market. What have you been hearing in the Chinese market? What what's uh, flavor of the month over the last four? Uh, well, some interesting the numbers. You know, so to June, the Chinese EV sales are close to a million. So we're going to be looking at close to two million, or if not more than two million sales by the end of the year when the uh, the big push comes. Likewise. Battery capacity is, is produced is close to 100 gigawatts, and again, so by the end of the year, expect that to get to 200 or above just with China alone. How's our Wulin Mini doing? Is it still leading the way, or has it started to sort of fall off a little bit? No, still leading the way. I think it's uh, it's second behind Tesla on uh, global uh, EV sales, more than Volkswagen, more than BYD, and the rest. So it's doing quite well. Not sure. I don't. I think it's going to become the Europe sometime soon, though. So uh, we'll uh, see if it sort of takes off in Europe. I'm not so certain about that, but uh, definitely a brilliant car for China. It might be a little bit ahead of its time in in Europe, yeah, particularly if they go for the selective marketing. That might uh, rub a lot of people up the wrong way. <laughs> BYD sales uh, have also been great. You know, a lot of uh, they they did some of their uh, earning. Uh, they had a, a report recently, and I think there are you know triple digits uh, year on year uh, sales in EV. So uh, again, compared to last year, obviously, I mean, even though last year was good EV sales, you know, it's good to see triple digits still. Yeah, China's still uh, pushing away uh, and now they're focusing on uh, getting their charging network to match their EV uh, stock. Uh, the mm. amount of EVs are going to be on the road and there's a bit of a mismatch between what's going to be available in the market and as we saw recently with the Neo Power Day, uh, different from the Neo Day that was only in January, they're going all in battery swapping for China anyway. So the government's pushing for a big EV charging network that comes in, but the, the industry is kind of, a number of Chinese players are quite interested in uh, EV swapping. Uh, I mean, swapping. I've, I've got to say the battery swapping is a very interesting strategy. I mean, particularly for, for cheaper batteries, it, it takes away the the onus, the requirement for fast charging. And, you know, Neo seemed to have made it work very well. I mean, I think I read, uh, I think four or five weeks ago, they'd up to 2 million swaps and they got between a, a million and 2 million swaps so, so quickly. So it's obviously taking off in China. And I think battery swapping is a, 
a key technology for two and three wheelers as well eliminates the need for for big bulky batteries if you can easily swap them so it really remains to be seen whether it takes off in european and and us markets but obviously it, it does eliminate a lot of needs for over-engineering, if you will, in the battery, if you can just rip it yeah. out and, and change it in, I think it's it's less than five minutes, isn't it? It takes. Uh, I think it's less than two minutes. But I think I, I might have come up with some EV swapping instead of battery swapping. How about just... Uh, do you think people are going to want to do that? I mean, having to clear all uh, of their no. stuff out of the car. And <laughs> you're already giving up your battery, which technically is the most valuable part of the car. So uh, maybe... But I mean, also, I mean, I think the battery swapping is a very interesting technology, not just from the point of view of speed of swap, but also from the point of view of lowering the value of electric vehicles in terms of the prices of electric vehicles. Because if you take out the battery from the cost and then just put it in as an operating cost rather than a capital cost, i.e. you rent the battery rather than buying it, or you rent a battery rather than buying it, that can really help with the upfront cost structure of the EV industry. Yeah. You're renting, where's the money? You know, these companies still need to make money, right? So where do they make the most money? And then, uh, you know, there's resale value on uh, car batteries now, but, you know, that battery, they won't have to be installed, right? Whether it's swapped or not, installed, and when it's done its final kilometer, it'll have to be, ripped out which again is uh energy you know energy intensive somebody's gonna have to do it someone's gonna have to drive the car line it up so maybe you skip all that and just have the swapping and and when it's done you know you'll have the cloud monitoring all those battery packs that are are, are charged up and and stored somewhere and uh, you know one day tick this battery pack is at 80 percent ship it off to or or uh, to its second life whatever it's going to yeah. be yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I think from a from an engineering standpoint, from a simplicity standpoint, from a circular economy standpoint, from a cost standpoint, it ticks a lot of boxes. The only thing that's waiting now is take up by some companies outside China. And obviously, if you have a battery swapping situation, then you have to invest less in, in infrastructure roadside infrastructure and home infrastructure and, and everything like that. So outside, outside personal car usage, uh, you can see battery swapping in industrial uses, mining equipment, warehouse equipment, long haul trucking, maybe even you're going to see everything else that is not a scale that's vast. I think uh, that uses very large battery packs, does not have hours or want to do fast charging, uh, just swapping out battery packs. Okay, so we'll be keeping a, a very close eye on Neo, and I think I think I read that Geely was was looking at battery swapping as well. Oh yeah, right? yeah, Geely as well, Lee Auto, I think, and yeah. uh, I think all of them really. I think Xpeng also, but uh, nobody has done as much work as uh, Neo, obviously. Yeah, and and I think Neo is launching in Norway with uh, battery swapping over the next couple of months. So it'd be quite interesting That's to interesting. see. Yeah, how, yeah, so how it goes. Norway's the gauge. For, yeah. The Western Western markets, uh, so be interesting to see, all right, what the, all that snow and ice does as you're backing in and backing out. And, uh, yeah, yeah, that that will be will be interesting to see how. Don't salt the roads the, up there. Do they salt the roads up? Winter. There'll be a lot of salt on your connections. Could be some problems. Okay. Anything else 
really exciting from from China this this month? Big thing I've been noticing in China is the announced capacity of lithium-ion phosphate projects. I think we mentioned already back in May or so April, but the, yeah, I noticed the June, July, a lot more lithium-ion phosphate projects have been announced by players who aren't traditionally involved. You know, could, they're coming from other uh, walks of uh, life in the Chinese industry, commercial industry. But the, yeah, lithium-ion phosphate is getting a big push. As you pointed out, graphite, also a lot of graphite projects being announced. And graphite processing, uh, especially, and then uh, again lithium hydroxide, which is a little bit surprising with the, all the uh, lithium iron phosphate announcements. There's been uh, quite a number of lithium hydroxide uh, announcements also. Interesting. So, sort of in- investment in the midstream, almost the um, anode materials, lithium hydroxide, LFP. Sort of. Yeah, agree. Yeah, most of the raw materials, and um, yeah. and then uh, GM again has been ramping up its interest in our it's a it is a recycler by nature but uh, is it pouring more money into uh, really getting full circular economy i think they're pouring another two billion or b into uh, battery recycling projects and they are going after producing high purity precursors and cam materials also they announced they're going to be producing ncma precursors which lg chem is really the only company that's come out and said they'll be using ncma so that's uh, probably directly for lgm or lg Yes, now they're called right LG, yeah, okay. LG Energy Solutions. And, okay, so, and the, so that's interesting. All very positive for the high purity manganese market, which is a very, very uh, strained market indeed. And I gather that manganese prices in uh, in China or manganese sulfate prices in China are moving north quite rapidly at the moment. So um, that's good news for all the sort of manganese developers spread around the world. All three of them. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, they'll be getting a knock on the door soon, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I guess that sort of feeds quite nicely into the the final point that I wanted to make in terms of of the resources space, which is that we're seeing quite a lot of we're seeing a, a very significant ramp up in M and A activity at the moment. I was on an interview a couple of weeks ago, and they said to me, "Well, what's Gangfeng doing? Because it's basically a, an acquisition a week at the moment. We've obviously got." BHP moving into to Canada with the with its Noront acquisition in nickel. We've got Piedmont active in Canada and also buying 50% of Iron Ridge's Ghana lithium project. And then this week we have the news of uh, Gervois Mining locking in its acquisition of, of Freeport Cobalt. So, you know, we're seeing quite a lot of very interesting moves in MA. Yeah. I think generally what we're seeing is effectively companies trying to lock down strategic asset bases. So Ganfeng is buying up what I would call slightly marginal lithium projects, the Sonora Clay project in Mexico, the uh, Firefinch Hard Rock project in Mali, which is a world-class project, but in a landlocked country a long way away from the coast. I think they've made an acquisition also in, in Brine in China. So they're trying to lock in marginal resources to build the next tier. And obviously, there's the millennial acquisition, which was announced uh, relatively recently. Then Piedmont and Gervois, I see basically mid-tier players trying to lock, lock in a strategic asset base. And I think both of those acquisitions look very interesting from their own particular viewpoint. So yeah, lots of activity in yeah. M&A and probably likely to continue now prices are on the march up again. 
is the Freeport an M&A or it was an acquisition? I mean, uh, so it's an it's an acquisition by Gervois. They bought the the Freeport okay. uh, cobalt asset, which is a smelting asset off Lundin Mining, I think it was, and you know that's a low cost smelting asset. So add that in with their acquisition of a nickel refining asset in Brazil last year, and they've yeah. obviously got their own upstream mining project in Idaho in the US. They're building, you know, a very interesting strategic position in cobalt, which even though is probably a less attractive material than than some battery materials, is still going to double in size in terms of demand over the next sort of five or 10 years. So that's a very interesting move. Yeah, they're locking up uh, available projects that aren't aren't, aren't in the Congo, right? Yeah. Strategic, all right. Difficult now with the Congo, but um, it ticks all the boxes of ESG and they'll be, you know, selected by all the battery makers. Um, So even though ERC has been cleaning up their act and they have that new government department now who buying all the... uh, Artisanal mining uh, and attesting that there's no child labor involved in that. Uh, they have some overseeing or method of overseeing that. I'm not sure what, what it is, but I think they recently set a floor price for lithium, right? Or for nick, uh, cobalt, sorry. Like 30,000 uh, a ton or, or thereabouts. It's more than acceptable. You know, I, I, I think that was a, a sort of requisite. I mean, that's still materially below the spot price. Um, oh, so unlikely yeah, yeah. to be an issue really in 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 the current cycle, but uh, hopefully, if prices go down again, it will give some sort of assurance to the to the miners. But um, yeah, yeah. Um, cobalt prices didn't go materially below that this cycle. Don't see it happening anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Anything else from your side? There's been a lot of technology days, especially with Chinese OEMs. Uh, Neo had a, a power day. SAIC had a uh, EV strategy day also, uh, where they revealed a new pack. So kind of similar to uh, what Volkswagen have a unified platform, one pack size, unified cell with battery pack swapping uh, abilities. And Great Wall Motors uh, also had a technology festival, actually, they're calling it, um, where they announced they plan to have global EV sales uh, by 4 million by 2025. Oh, sorry, four, four million vehicle sales by 2025, and 80% of those being electric vehicles. So that's interesting. And they just revealed their new DAU uh, battery safety system and made all the IP available to uh, the entire industry. And this involves battery safety, where uh, they address uh, issues of thermal runaway. The chemistry they, they used to demonstrate the, um, the effectiveness of their safety system was the NMC 811. And they incorporate a number of design concepts to make this pack uh, safe. So it's kind of like what GAC have done and kind of like what BYD have done, where they're demonstrating that we can make a pack that is more or less explosion and thermal fireproof. Uh, so it's, Okay, uh, okay, that's interesting. And, and obviously, from the point of view of the architectures, we've also seen a fair amount of... Um, of updates from from Western companies as well. I think Daimler gave an update about the two or three battery architectures that Mercedes is going to use going forward, yeah. slightly different sizes for different wheelbase vehicles. So they're not doing a one-size-all platform, right? So Well, I, th- I think that's easy when you just produce cars, but when you produce yeah. 
light commercial and and heavy commercial vehicles as well. I, I don't think a one size fits all is is necessarily viable. Yeah, yeah. And so they, uh, well, they have the SUVs, they have the premium uh, sedans, and uh, mm. they have the, the light good vehicles, the vans, and you said even heavy good vehicles. So the real focus for the industry going forward is going to be well, how much improvement in manufacturing efficiency can the legacy OEMs attain and is that going to be enough to offset the increase in battery raw material prices that we will certainly see over the next 12 to 18 months and remember that even though spot lithium prices have gone up 100% over the last year the bulk of the big OEMs are buying batteries from producers who have long-term contract prices locked in for lithium, which will not change until the 1st, 1st of January 2022. So even though spot prices have gone up materially, contract yeah. prices have not risen at all. So we won't actually see the uh, increase in, in cost for a lot of these batteries until probably first or second quarter of next year running through the system. Be interesting to see how what's going to happen that cost curve. I've heard from contacts in China that a number of LFP battery producers that don't have a raw material pass-on contracts with their suppliers are really struggling. And, and in fact, I, I understand that a couple of them actually had to stop production until they could get cost pass-on contracts. So, you know, I think it's going to be one part of the industry is going to get squeezed. And at the moment, we don't know if it's going to be the battery producers or if it's going to be the the OEMs. But my gut feeling is the bulk of the big battery producers have got cost pass-throughs. So it could be the OEMs that are going to get squeezed because, let's face it, they can't increase prices of, of electric vehicles because they're already miles out of the mass market anyway. Yeah, yeah, that is going to upset the Apple card and maybe even delay, if that did happen, uh, definitely delay the uh, the electrification of the ICE fleet. So I think uh, they're going to get squeezed all over the supply chain. The uh, miners are, are going to get done for sure. Converters, the Chinese converters for sure, because even the battery manufacturers, you know, they have little tolerance for the uh, price increases, actually. So. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, uh, that's a slightly uh, depressing area to yeah. end on, but we'll we'll end there anyway. And I'll say, Cormac, thanks very much for your time and uh, look forward to speaking to you next month. Thank you, Matt. Talk to you next month. Okay, cheers. So if you've got any questions on the topics we've discussed, please contact me or you can find more information at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. Moving on to our interview now. I'm delighted to be joined today by Mark Selby, who's CEO of TSX Venture-listed Canada Nickel. Canada Nickel is looking to develop the Crawford Nickel Sulfide project in Ontario, Canada. Mark, thanks very much for joining us today. And Matt, thanks very much for having the opportunity. It's great uh, to talk again. Pleasure. So for our listeners, the Crawford Nickel project is located just to the north of Timmins, Ontario which is within a thousand kilometers of Detroit, Michigan, which is likely to become a major hub for US electric vehicle manufacture and pretty close to Southern Ontario, a hub for Canadian electric vehicle manufacture. It's got a measured and indicated resource of 653 million tons at 0.26% nickel 
with byproduct iron, chromium, cobalt, and PGM. So Mark, you've recently filed a PEA for the project. Can you talk us through the high points of that? Sure. Yeah, I know we were very, very happy with where the uh, PEA landed. So overall NPV, uh, $1.2 billion, 16% IRR. We go through a two-stage expansion. And when we're fully expanded, we'll be producing over 40,000 tons of nickel a year, along with a substantial amount of iron and chrome. That level of production would put Crawford, if it was producing today, at one of the five largest nickel sulfide operations globally. It would make us the largest base metal mine in Canada. So, you know, again, you know, what the electric vehicle market is looking for is new scale sources of supply, you know, and we really believe Crawford uh, is, is, you know, at the front of the pack in terms of being one of the few new sources of nickel that could come to the market by mid-decade because of, of where we're located, the scale of what we've got and the ability to deliver nickel at a very low cost. And you talk about cost there and sort of what sort of costs are you looking for? Are you, what sort of quartile are you looking for on the cost curve? We're in a great position. We're in the middle of the first quartile, just over a dollar pound cash cost and all in sustaining cash costs of just under $2 a pound because we have that significant iron and chrome byproduct credit. And as well, too, as you said, we've got you know potential cobalt PGM credits that we'll, we'll be building in for the feasibility study. One other point I w- want to make, too, is you know we're advancing this project very aggressively. So we only started drilling this deposit just under two years ago. And this resource that the the, uh, PA was based on was locked down last October at hole 65. And today we're at hole 150. So, you know, we expect the resource that we're going to have for the feasibility study and the potential scale of the operation to be much, much larger um, than was contemplated and much more valuable than what was contemplated in the PA. Okay. And I think it's fair to say that this is quite a low-grade ore body. Can you just explain for our listeners why you feel that an ore body with a grade this low makes this a viable development project? This is the, you know, sort of, I think, the biggest challenge for a lot of investors to get their head around. You know, as someone who's owned Kembalda Nickel Deposits, used to work for Inco uh, before and, and mined a range of nickel deposits that, you know, <laughs> were from $1,000 a ton value to $50 a ton value. The key thing that people have to remember, it's not just about the grade and value, it's about the cost to get that grade and value. You know, very simply, you know, if you if you look at our deposit, you know, we'll be mining material closer to $30 a ton over the first, first years of the mine life. And then, you know, mining closer to $20, you know, with a per ton of value with a cost structure, uh, you know, in some cases below $10 per ton. You know, when you can have those very large, you know, 50 to 60% operating margins, that's the thing that, you know, drives a huge amount of value. So, you know, we're in a position where we have all the infrastructure in place. Uh, We have a local community, so we don't have fly-in, fly-out labor. The scale of the resource, you know, allows a very large open pit operation. We'd be the second largest base metal open pit mine in Canada. And so all those factors together allow us to deliver a very low cost operation, which for the low grade we have, you know, allow us to be a very high value operation going forward. And given that this is such a big project that you were envisaging, how does the project stack up versus the peer group on a greenhouse gas emission basis, which obviously is very important to sort of OEMs and and people who are investing in nickel at the moment? Yeah, that's the other thing that, that's quite exciting about these deposits in general, and then specifically where we are in Timmins. So we're at the first percentile of the carbon curve. You know, we had Scarn uh, do the work. So on 
that basis, you know, we're a very, very low carbon footprint operator. A big driver of that is we're in an area of Ontario where all of the electricity is zero carbon. That allows us to, to uh, and the electricity is relatively low cost. So that allows us to use electricity in the place of diesel for trucks, where we use trolley trucks and, and for electric shovels. Uh, and that allows us to displace, you know, nearly 40% of our diesel usage if we didn't have that low cost electricity available, and then we're looking for other opportunities to do it. So, you know, in terms of scale, cost, and, and carbon curve, we're in great great shape. And then on top of it, we announced well over a year ago, or about a year ago, that we had trademarked the terms net zero nickel, net zero cobalt, and net zero iron, because in addition to our already low carbon footprint, these ultramafic nickel deposits, and there's a few other ones uh, in Canada and in Mount Keith in Australia, where the tailings and waste rock, the, the mineral that makes them up, uh, spontaneously absorb CO2 and is exposed to air. So, you know, we're, we're doing the work now to document that capacity to absorb CO2, you know, and we expect by the time we finish the feasibility study, that we'll be in a place that will be a net zero carbon producer of materials, which, you know, again, would be ideally positioned you know for the ev sector and then you know the in the general economy as it decarbonizes okay that that's really interesting so i mean just from a battery specific situation iron in battery grade nickel is pretty deleterious would you be able to strip out all of the iron from the nickel the interesting thing is over the last few months there's been some pretty interesting developments in the marketplace, you know, we saw the Qingshan announcement um, at the uh, end of February um, where they were going to make mat from, from nickel pig iron. You know, we don't have have nearly that much iron relative to the nickel that's contained there. So, you know, so our concentrates, sulfide concentrates, you can roast them. Once they're roasted, you can feed them into the same kind of electric arc furnaces that you see, see used to make nickel pig iron. And now just the, the announcement that just happened this week is POSCO is looking at reach retooling one of their line, one of their ferronickel lines to make map. And so, you know, roasting is literally a few cents a pound. They spend about 60 to $80 per ton of feed. Um, and when you have feed that has, you know, in our case, our high grade concentrate is 35% nickel and nearly 800 pounds of nickel. And our standard grade is 12% nickel. That's 250. You know, that's a very, very small cost per pound, which then allows you to take that mat and feed it into a refinery. The other development that's happened over the past few weeks from my past life with when I was with RNC with Dumont and, and discussing with various members of the supply chain, which I'm now picking up now that we have a PEA on Crawford, the Blackstone Minerals EcoPro joint venture in Vietnam, where they're bringing concentrate in the front end and within a single facility, converting it into a battery precursor material is really the way uh, a lot of the battery industry wants to move from an overall value chain perspective, dissolving nickel once, keeping it in solution until it's at, at a final stage to be produced is really their preferred way of doing it. So, you know, the fact that you now have this sort of Qingshan now slash POSCO mat model, this Blackstone EcoPro concentrate to precursor plants, you know, that's that's how I see a large-scale sulfide project like ours delivering nickel units into the EV chain going forward. And presumably the Blackstone um, process is a lot cleaner in terms of GHG emissions, et cetera, as well. Yes, for sure. No, you have... Um, it's a hydrometallurgical process, so there will be very, very few uh, carbon emissions from that. And then again, you know, with traditional NPI, plant uh, is dirty if you use dirty electricity to make it and then use a pile of coal 
as a reductant, you know, in the case of somebody like Posco. Uh, and I know if you know we're looking at content building, the, the PEA contemplates a partner building a stainless plant in Timmins is that, you know, we have access to zero carbon hydroelectricity. We have access to natural gas, which still has some carbon, but you also have hydrogens, hydrogen atoms and that methane molecule helping to reduce what you're trying to produce. So you only need to use a small amount of carbon. And again, in the Timmins area where we are, it's a massive forest products center um, for, for Ontario. And so, you know, there's a large amount of wood products that, you know, we're looking at, at uh, using biochar, um, which is a renewable form of carbon and hence, you know, wouldn't count towards uh, our carbon footprint. So, so e either path, we believe can deliver a low carbon solution in terms of, of refining to a final product. Okay. Okay. That's very interesting. Thanks very much. So I think it's fair to say that it's been a pretty up and down year for nickel equities, thanks in no small part to the uh, Sing Shan announcement that you referred to too earlier. And I suppose I'll sort of lead in also to talk a little bit more about the, the wider market. What would you say, based on your experience, would be the nickel incentive price for this project? What do you think, based on, on your experience of the industry, is the average incentive price for nickel required to build new sulfide projects at the moment? Yep, no, that's a good question. So in terms of our project specifically, you know, for the PEA, we used a $17,000 a ton nickel price. And, and again, delivering a 16% IR, which we expect to go up by the time we're completed the feasibility study, you know, th those kind, you know, at that price and those kind of returns, you know, $17,000, any large mining company would sign off on that all day long. I've previously worked at uh, various large mining companies. You know, I think the you know, realistic range in terms of what would get done, you know, if the nickel market was still trading as low as say $15,000 a ton, but there was a view that, you know, the, the fundamentals longer term, you know, were going to continue to improve. You know, I think, you know, a project like ours would still get green lighted, you know, at around that $14,000 to $15,000 a ton uh, nickel price. Um, when you look at the other nickel sulfide projects, the big advantage that we have is, you know, we have all of the major infrastructure in place. In fact, we have to move a little bit out of the way to develop our pit. We're not in a remote area where you have to, to develop, uh, you know, spend a lot of money and also permit a significant amount of infrastructure to plug into the plant. So, you know, they have another 500 million to billion dollars of capital that they would need, need, need to handle. So, you know, in those cases, you're probably looking at incentive prices that, you know, could run you know, as much as another, you know, thousand to two thousand dollars a ton or 50 cents to a dollar pound higher than the 17,000 that we've got. So, you know, somewhere closer to nine to ten dollars a pound versus the seven, you know, the seven, six fifty to seven seventy five range that I think would get our project advanced. And uh, obviously, you've seen uh, this week BHP news yep. with it uh, bidding for a Canadian nickel asset. Given the amount of nickel projects that are around at the moment do, do you think that uh, nickel assets nickel development assets should be trading at a premium i mean there aren't very many large-scale assets in the market at the moment are there no no i mean the reason i've stayed in, in nickel I, I know i've worked in copper and and you know again have had exposure to a range of base metals the real value opportunity, the reason I have most of my non-real estate net worth in this company is that, you know, if you look back and we've, we've had a slide in our investor deck for a long time, when you look at nickel sulfide, new nickel sulfide discoveries, they are very rare. You get one or two large scale discoveries per decade. 
because they're a scarce commodity, they tend to trade out at a very large premium. And if you get the timing right, that you get into one of these nickel super cycles that happen every 15 to 20 years. We had one in the late 60s, one in the late 80s, one in the mid 2000s. And again, feels like we're shaping up for another one with the EV overlay on top of very, very strong stainless steel demand. Those are tremendous ways to create a huge amount of value. And, and I think BHP's deal this week, you know, is a clear sign of just how scarce those are. So, you know, why Lou, who they outbid, who is uh, Iandu Forest's you know, private investment vehicle for mining, he did a joint venture on, on a project called West Ragland that I owned at uh, RNC that we spun out into a company called Orford. Wailu joint ventured on that one. The other high-grade Canadian uh, nickel resource of any scale is Norant. And so you know, the fact that you know, BHP paid a massive premium, they, you know, that $325 million, they're paying you know, more than $1,200 a, a per ton of nickel resource. That's been identified there. You know, you take that metric and, and apply it to us. That gets to a very, very large number and a, and a multiple of where we're at today. And again, BHP announced they were opening the nickel exploration office in Toronto. They haven't even got the office open yet, and they've made this deal. And so, I think it speaks to the scarcity of these assets that they're really only you know it's one or two hands worth of sulfide assets that are worth owning globally. And you know, I think we'll be you know again typically what happens with these once one major starts buying, you're going to see the other people uh, you know start rushing to the front of the queue um, so they don't miss out. So I think the next 12 to 24 months is going to be very, very, very exciting for nickel equities. You know. And we're going to see the kind of deals that we've saw in the past or, you know, that we saw with Foises Bay, that we saw with Jubilee Mines and Lion Ore back in the mid-2000s. You know, I think it's going to be equally exciting in the next year or two for nickel sulfide projects that have a shot at getting built this decade. So roll on the good times then. Well, fingers crossed. And I guess just to conclude, what are the key factors that you think that the market doesn't get then about this asset and about this company? The key thing here is just Again, you know, I've held a chunk of 5% nickel core. It looks very sexy. But, you know, the reality is, is someone has to drive, drill, drill a 500 meter hole to get a, maybe a 5 or 10 meter intersection of that. And then hopefully you maybe get 5 to 10 million tons of that at a best case, a couple percent nickel. And, you know, that's a very small resource. You know, we literally have 10 times the resource already of some of the, the, the largest players, the largest market cap other players in the space. And, you know, again, it doesn't always translate, that high grade doesn't translate into high value. You know, you can look through Cambalda, look at Mincor's Poseidon's, you know, they, they have mineral inventories with multiple deposits with two, three, four, five percent nickel grades that have been shut down for, for six years because the cost structures don't allow them to generate, a, you know, a significant amount of value. Yes, our grade is low. Yes, our recovery is low, but we're in a place that's very, very low cost to operate. And we can operate at a scale you know, that drives that cost down to the same cost that you'd see in any large scale, low grade copper mine, which all of the majors are very comfortable operating. All we're doing is taking that same scale that you see at those low grade copper deposits and applying it to a low grade nickel deposit. So I think if investors take the, took the time to just, just think that through and what kind of, what kind of assets, and again, you don't see the BHPs of the world buying a 3% copper assets that's going to produce a few hundred thousand tons of nickel, uh, copper over a lifetime. They buy 10, 20, 30 million ton copper assets, and they're going to be looking for the equivalent of those in the nickel space, you know, and deposits like offered, you know, are exactly those kind of deposits. And to be fair, most porphyry copper deposits are down to about 0.3% copper anyway. So uh, yes, I, I, I guess that's a, that's a fair point. Excellent. 
Mark Selby, CEO of TSX Venture Listed Canada Nickel. Thanks very much for your time today. Thank you. So that brings us to the end of our podcast for August. You can get more detail on any of the topics I've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.